It's wonderful to see you all this morning. Have you ever thought this idea that we live in a Photoshop society? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? And what does that mean, right? We, we live in a time where magazines and billboards, computer ads, TV commercials, and even personal photos uh, attempt to alter our view of reality, right? Graphic designers use Photoshop on their computers to make people look thinner, guys more muscular, skin look cleaner, and so on. And nowadays, the average person can use Photoshop to make their profile pictures look better. And we don't know what's real anymore. So in other words, you can say that everything is counterfeit. And this idea has also crept into the church. So when it comes down to it, we're afraid of the very word holy. Right? Because it's used in phrases like holier than thou, which seems to paint a picture of someone very legalistic. Or holy is also a common adjective used before one's cuss word of choice. Yeah, I see some of you shaking your heads. You got that one. All right. So therefore, we don't use the word that often. And when we do, we tend to use it wrong. In the same way, we are afraid of offending the visitor or the unbeliever by talking about God's holiness. So instead, we create a different definition of holiness, which would be a counterfeit holiness. And this type of fake holiness surrounds us so much that we really wouldn't know what to do with it if someone or something of genuine holiness popped up. See, God is above all holy, but he has a history of being rejected by man when he pops up, starting with Adam and leading up to the ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ by his own people. And however, there are many great examples in Scripture of man responding to God's holiness, and we're going to look at one today, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And the first eight verses of this chapter do an excellent job of showing us how man should respond to God's holiness. And just a little bit of background information. Before we begin, we're going to look at some of the background information on the nation of Israel I think it will help us see the full context of this passage. See, at this time, Israel was divided. It was split into two. The northern kingdom had split from the southern kingdom. Isaiah served as a prophet in the southern kingdom, or Judah. And this part of Israel was surely not at its worst during this time, but they were definitely turning away from God. They had misplaced their trust in neighboring nations, which would soon come around to really harm them after the death of their king Uzziah. So they're in conflict with themselves and in conflict with surrounding nations. Does this sound familiar? Because America is not too far off. Yes, I said it. In all of this, Isaiah's ministry involved calling Judah to repent and turn back to God, which is unquestionably what we need today. 
definitely what we need today. And as we begin Isaiah 6, we see that Isaiah has a clear crisis on his hands. So here's what we should look for as we study this text. And it's this. What is Isaiah's response when he encounters God's holiness? What is Isaiah's response when he encounters God's holiness? And I'll read it again. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to start, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two covered his face, with two covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. So when it comes down to it, we're looking at three major responses that Isaiah had when he came face to face, so to speak, right, with the authentic holiness of God. So these are the three things we're going to be looking at today. First, Isaiah responds with glory. Second, with guilt. And third, with gratitude. So if you're taking notes, the first is with glory. Second, with guilt. And the third, with gratitude. I'm not as techie as Nathan, so I don't have everything up there on the screen for you guys. Okay? So... So right off the bat, Isaiah is in awe at the heavenly vision, right, that God gives him. And he paints us a glorious picture of God seated on the throne. And this is not like the earthly throne of Uzziah, who he mentions, okay? This is a throne unlike any other that Isaiah has ever seen. And he mentions that this throne of the Lord is high and lifted up. So God is not only high above all others, but he is lifted up, which seems to suggest he rules over all thrones. And not only that, but the train of his robe filled the temple. And that's a beautiful sight because it's everywhere. The entire temple is filled with it. Now, this image is not too unfamiliar with this because many of us have been to weddings before. And we know the bride is the focal point of the ceremony. Yes, that is true. So I'm sure you've seen all kinds of wedding dresses with the long trains, right? These are the ones that are usually have a bridesmaid carrying the long extended flowing piece of fabric that allows, you know, the bride to be able to walk so she doesn't fall down. That's part of it. We've all seen this, but have you ever seen the one where the flowing back into the dress fills the entire church. Every aisle, every window, and every part of that sanctuary overflowing with that train, because I think in our mind we would be blown away. 
right? Because the bride has total command and attention of the room. And that's a little more what Isaiah was going through when he saw God's train. And this clearly displays his divine authority and majesty. So Isaiah had no choice but to stand in awe. He's undoubtedly also struck with awe when he observes the angels who are surrounding the throne. And these angels are described as having how many wings? Oh, thank God you're listening. (laughs) Isaiah describes one of the seraphim. He says, with two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And I ask myself this question. Does that seem a little strange to you? Right? The angel only needs two wings to fly. So why does it have the other four? Right? It's using more than half of its wings to do something that we're not designed for. That would be like a cheetah only using one leg to run. So the angels were doing this on purpose, right? They were taking a humble posture before God. The majestic presence of the Lord humbled them. And not only that, but also these beings were exclaiming what? Holy, 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 over and over again. That's why in our Eucharistic service, boy, that was a tongue twister. Like, so when we say holy, 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 what do we do? You see some of us up here, what? We bow. That's being reverent. Okay? That's, that's why we do that. So now you have that picture of why we do that. So the repetition of this word suggests complete or supreme holiness. Right? Which is something that's truly beyond human comprehension. So by repeating it three times, there is a sense of transcendence. See, God's holiness is unlike any kind of holiness that we can imagine. And the angels also sing that the whole earth is full of his glory. So the worship also connects with the previous image of God's train filling the temple. The glory of the Lord, right, is not something that can be contained, but it's something that fills the whole earth. And this probably conflicted with the standard Israelite worldview, which held that God was confined to their land. So in that case, this site clearly shattered Isaiah's worldview. If, in fact, he believed God to be limited like the rest of his people, most likely who believed it. So Isaiah is showing us a bigger picture of what he was really experiencing So not only was he in God's presence, which was filling the temple, he was joined by worshiping angels who were worshiping the Lord, whose glory fills the entire earth. So we can see how awestruck Isaiah was at this beautiful, phenomenal scene. And then finally, we see that the scene involved a certain level of intensity. It says that the foundations of the threshold shook because of how loud the worship was and that the house was filled with smoke. Now, I don't know about you or what you would do in that situation, but I think I would be gone. Okay? And the vision of Isaiah was a lot more forceful. So you can imagine the sound of the rumbling of the brick and everything falling down. And while this was happening, the room was completely filled with smoke, and Isaiah stayed. Smoke in the Old Testament sometimes was a sign of God's presence, but most of the time it was associated with divine judgment. So something big was about to happen And Isaiah stayed where he was. He had every reason to leave, earthquake, smoke, judgment, but he stayed there. 
So what we see overall is that authentic holiness causes shock in those who are exposed to it. So he stood there in awe of God's glory. And as we're about to see, he also admitted his guilt as he gazed upon the holiness of God. So that's our second point. He responds with guilt. After seeing what Isaiah saw, he says, woe is me. So first, authentic holiness caused this awe, and then it causes conviction. We have to remember that this was a prophet of God. This was a man who was called by God, and yet he responds to God's holiness with an awareness of his own sin. And that's why he says, woe is me. You see it in the today with Peter falling before Jesus himself. Isaiah is self-conscious. He's utterly humbled. He even says that he is a man of unclean lips. He is admitting his guilt before a holy God. And the holiness of God penetrated him and it showed him his faults. And I know in my own life that's painful. So I have no doubt in my mind how painful that was for Isaiah. W.B. Yeats once said, it takes more examage to Uh, It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. When we stand before a holy, pure, undefiled God with our baggage and our sin, it sticks out and it's painfully obvious. So in other words, right, when we compare something that is supposed to be pure to something that is actually pure, there is a stark contrast. And this was Isaiah multiplied multiplied by a million. His sin was absolutely apparent to him, and he was changed into a man full of conviction. And he also feels the guilt for the sins of his people. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I think that situation was probably a little clearer to him than his own sin, but maybe not. Israel clearly had some problems, but they were still God's people. We see here that the burden of sin that Isaiah carries is not just for himself, but also for his people. It's not just about his sin, but also about the sin of an entire nation. He feels a sense of responsibility for the moral well-being of his people. He's concerned for them. And this idea has been popularized in recent years by the mainstream success of superhero movies. Right? The hero must rise up and battle his own demons so that he can save the city. Right? The hero feels responsible, whether it's your favorite, if it's Batman of Gotham, Superman of Metropolis, Spider-Man in New York. Take your pick. But they feel a burden for their people. So, in a sense, one pastor said this, Isaiah was an ancient Hebrew superhero. He felt the weight of responsibility on his shoulders. Because altogether, authentic holiness causes personal as well as corporate conviction. Thirdly, Isaiah responds with gratitude. Isaiah 6, 6 through 7 says, And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And this is truly amazing. Isaiah's confession of his sin in the previous verse was followed by a gracious act of God. 
there's a remedy. And there's a solution, right? God cleansed Isaiah's guilt. And he sent one of the angels to Isaiah with a burning coal, which would have been a familiar symbol from the ceremonies to atone for the sin in the earthly temple. But this was the heavenly temple. God himself sent an angelic servant to perform the ritual of atonement to Isaiah, and it's truly unbelievable. And truly, this is the climax of the passage. God's love, grace, and mercy are all in focus here. Because Isaiah didn't deserve anything other than the woe that he put on himself. And still God reached out to him and he fully pardoned him. And the passage concludes with Isaiah's response to God. And before the scene closes, God lays a mission before Isaiah. And he says... Who will go for me? And this is probably referring to the problem that Isaiah realized earlier, that of a nation's overwhelming guilt. There was a clear lack of holiness in Israel. God was establishing the need for someone to show this to his people. And astonishingly, it seems like Isaiah responds immediately when he says these very famous words. He says, here am I, send me. And he takes God's mission as his own. He's been exposed to the holiness of God, convicted of his own sin, redeemed from his sin, and now given an opportunity to show his thanks towards God. And Isaiah didn't know how long this mission would take, where he would have to go, what he would have to do, and how difficult it would be, but he volunteered anyway. He didn't say, I'll go if I have success. Or I'll go if the conditions are right. Right? He was willing to spend the rest of his life in service to God no matter what. And here's the beauty of it. God didn't have to force him. God did not have to force Isaiah. He merely presented the mission. And Isaiah took it up as his own. D.A. Carson interprets the situation like this. He says, God here shares with the prophet the critical significance of his ministry. Sinful Israel has come to the point where one more rejection of the truth will finally confirm for them inevitable judgment. The dilemma of the prophet is that there's no way of saving the sinner, but the very truth whose rejection will condemn him utterly. So Isaiah was going to be rejected because Isaiah's mission was to expose the people to their sin and to the holiness of God. And we still see he jumps at the opportunity with joy and he is willing to go through suffering in order to serve God. So through and through authentic holiness led Isaiah to a joyful, that's the key word church, joyful response of service. So my question For all of us is how many of us are willing to have that kind of attitude? I don't know. Because we're willing to admit that we're sinners. Are we willing to admit and accept God's forgiveness for our lives? But how many of us are really ready to do what God's calling us to do? And going out there. When we were in Denver, we heard the word mission quite a bit. We also heard the word family quite a bit. 
And one of the things that struck out to Nathan and myself was the fact that most of those churches were small like us. And all of us are doing God's work. Being faithfully present where we are. When you go to work every day, that's your mission field. When you're with your extended family, believe it or not, that's your mission. Sometimes you don't want to be with them. I get that, but wherever you go, you take Christ with you. We need to model that outside of these walls. Because for many of us, I'm going to throw myself in there, we like to play it safe. Right? Sometimes we're afraid to expose ourselves to God even. To really get a clear picture of our spiritual condition. To let God look at us, to let the light inside of us. And sometimes we're afraid that he might call us to do something about it. So what do we do now? It's a great question. I think we must respond. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 gives us an awesome example of what to do. We have to open ourselves to the authentic holiness of God. We have to stand in his glory. We have to admit guilt and be aware of our sins. We have to respond to God joyfully in gratitude. Because the prophet was totally changed when he was exposed to the authentic holiness of God. We see a total transformation, one from awe and conviction to one of forgiveness and eagerness. So simply put, we need to expose ourselves to the authentic holiness of God on a regular basis. We do that through prayer, through the study of his word, being around one another. And the hard part for us is that we shouldn't leave it for another time. We should do it today. Right? Authentic holiness is not distant. It's here. It's now. I'm going to tell you, church, if you let it, it will change your life. So my brothers and sisters, open yourself to God. Respond to God. See how he will change your life. And as you go forth out of here, remember, hey, we're to be faithfully present in this community. You know, God's given this church uh, for a reason. And I'm sure when Nathan comes back, he might expand on, on more of the trip that we had. I'll let him do that. But I'm going to tell you, we're very excited. And we can't do this church without you and being a part of the mission to go out and carry God's word. Amen.